This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 339, we're going to recruit the biggest, baddest villain this side of a D20, as we talk about how to make your big boss baddies bigger and bosser and baddier? <laughs> Joining us for this episode are two old hands from the Tome Show episodes of Days Gone Yar, and a scrappy newcomer is here to teach us a lesson in awesomeness. First up... Is a friend of the show. He's written in the most recent Watsi books. He's an extraordinary podcaster and a former Tom Show host. Welcome back, James and Tricasso. Hey, thank you for having me, Tracy and Jeff. This is great. It's awesome to be here. Awesome to have you here, too. Woo. Yay! Literally, anytime you want to be on, James, the show is, is, is ready for you. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm just going to come hang out all the time. There you all go. The time. In fact, in fact... <laughs> Our next recording is about uh, Keith Amon's the, the Monsters Know What They're Doing, and he's in the chat room right now. So. He's in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's in the chat room. I'll just stare at him. I'll be yeah, like, yeah. Why, why no troglodyte, Keith? Yeah. Why, didn't, why no troglodyte in the book, huh? <laughs> Secondly, we have the grizzled veteran, author of Sly Flourish, and a co-host on our very own Behind the DM screen, it's Mike Shea. Hello. I don't know. I don't know about grizzled. I guess. It's probably a little bit a little grizzled. You have an aura of ego? Yeah, certainly. Well, you put me right in the dead center of the tone shift. Only because I had my window cropped. So. That's right. And lastly, the newcomer has been writing, designing, and editing for D&D since ye old days of third edition. Clearly the most experienced, intelligent, and beautiful of us all. Welcome for the first time, Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Hey, uh, I think we could argue the last point, but um, I don't know how much time we have. Um, but thank you. No, it's awesome to be here. I do want to remind folks who are listening to this uh, later. I think most of our audience, the vast majority of our audience is listening to the podcast, and that's awesome. But if you ever wanted to see uh, how the sausage is made, and I don't know if that's a particular uh, thing that people want to see, but uh, we do stream our live unedited recordings at twitch.tv slash tomeshow. Uh, you can also follow us there and be notified when a recording is about to start. Uh, and if you miss a live recording but you still want to see the unedited video, uh, the Tome Show has a YouTube channel. You can't participate in the chat that way, but you can see our lovely faces. And, and you can judge for yourself which of our guests is the most beautiful for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> You really don't need to. That's okay. <laughs> and of course, uh, the wonderfully edited audio will come out a week or two later through the normal podcast feed, so you can listen to it all that way. There you See? go. Now, into the episode, we're going to be talking about how to take your big bad villain and make sure they're the biggest and the baddest. This isn't just an issue of making sure your players are challenged when they go into an encounter. Uh, it's also to make sure the scariest baddies in the game are as scary as they should be, while just not being a DM that just drops rocks on the party. Right. That's probably not a good way to do it. And that's it. I mean, you just hit my strategy. I'm right. Done. right. <laughs> so uh, it is not an accident that we have this crew on to talk about this topic either. Gentlemen, um, is this a good time to, to for you to talk about why you might be particularly relevant panelists to have on for this topic? Yes. So the, the, uh, we're talking right now uh, in May, but uh, on June 1st, we will be running a Kickstarter uh, 
for a book called Fantastic Lairs, uh, which if you go to fantasticlairs.com right now, you can see the cover of our book. Um, and it is a, uh, a book that is going to be full of ready to drop in boss battles for your 5e games. Um, and uh, we'll have bosses of all different levels. There will be uh, lairs, obviously, for those bosses to hang out in story hooks for every single one of them uh advice for adjusting the encounter on the fly uh you know up or down depending on how you want to do it uh full color maps for each layer uh, as well as a nice awesome piece of art of the villain itself you will see um so uh and a lot of advice too uh in the typical uh, sly flourish style for building your own layer encounters and that kind of thing so so given that uh you've got that coming down the pipe and and it'll probably be a week or two before this comes out and that'll that timing will hit just about right to, to for people to be listening to this hopefully uh in time to go and, ch- and check that out and, and go support you on that project right correct correct that's, that's the goal <laughs> so fingers that's crossed. the hope yeah <laughs> that's right so, so it works out well. Uh, this week's theme, or this month's theme of recording, seems to be focused around the idea of um, getting the most out of your monsters. Right. Next uh, week, we're talking about Keith Amon's um, "The Monsters Know What They're Doing" book. Um, and you, uh, James, reached out to me saying, "Hey." We've got this thing coming up. Anyway, we can we can get on and talk about stuff, right? Uh, and I'm like, well, that's not irrelevant to the theme, uh, and it's <laughs> and it's kind of a topic that was has been of interest of mine for a little while. There was a a few it was a few months ago. Oh, it must have been even longer than that. It was because it was before I moved. It was probably about a year ago. Um, I was trying to figure out how to make my uh, big bad baddies uh, as bad as they could be uh, because I was playing with demon lords and uh, my PCs were walking all over them, right? Mm. Uh, and so I asked a, a, a good friend of mine who, who got lucky and came up with some good advice. Um, Mike Shea over here uh, on behind the DM screen uh, gave me some good ideas about how to make my demon lords like the big scary things that demon lords are supposed to be, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, so that's sort of been rolling around in my head for a while, and I thought when it comes to, to figuring out how do you not, I mean, not, and I don't think it's just a matter of like make your monster scary. It's a matter of like how do you make the like the demon lord level of monster like as scary as they should be, right? And and in my head there are there were three approaches to how to do that. Um, reskin, sort of tweak what you've got, uh, or build from scratch. Does that kind of cover the three ways of getting to this that that you're hearing or that you're thinking of? Uh, I I would I would I would add uh, a a pretty big one I think which is um looking at the whole encounter rather than just the big bad mm-hmm. right because like fighting a demon lord is one thing fighting a demon lord with his two pet balors is something else and you know looking at the entire encounter can uh as a whole i think can radically change and yeah, i think that is often the advice that i've heard even coming out of watsi too which is not worrying so much about what that monster itself does uh but what the whole how the whole scene is laid out 
you know, mm-hmm. paying attention to that. So I don't, I don't know if that counts in your three, because you're talking about just the monster itself. That's yeah, like, yeah. That's no, that's fine. That's fine. I think, and I think that's worth talking about. In fact, I've added it to my little list here of things to discuss. So, um, so let's talk about that then. Let's start with that. Let's, you know, we don't change anything with the monster. We just take the monster, the big bad as is. And we design encounters in such a way to to make that big bad threatening. You brought it up, Mike. So do you have particular thoughts on how to sure. do that well? Um, I think that more monsters are almost always more dangerous than big monsters is one is one thing. And I'm, you know, I'm going to say a bunch of nonsense and then people can be like, actually, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, you know, it's, always very, it's very cool to have Scott James here. Be like, ah, no. No, that's wrong. Um, but generally, I found that more monsters are, 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 you know, is more dangerous than bigger monsters. But the other thing is that, like, players love to Nova the big bad, right? They're always focused. Like, if they see, like, one guy who's six inches higher than everyone else there, that's the guy they're going for. And figuring out how to protect your big bad from that Nova, from the the paladin who's going to use every smite in his arsenal in the first round to try to do, you know, to try to knock him right out of the picture in that first shot um, is something that has to sort of be accounted for. And tricks are like, uh, you know, the boss doesn't show up right away. You know, like they get involved in an encounter, they're fighting all the minions, and then the boss shows up, right? And now the characters are spread all over the room. They've already burned a lot of their stuff. They're not in any position to go start noving the boss at this point. Um, you know, that, that's a, that's a, that's certainly a trick. Uh, you know, you, you, you brought up that this is really at the, if we're, if we're talking at the demon Lord level, the other thing we have to kind of recognize is that the power curve, the, the, you know, I think for prob- probably every edition of D and D, uh, the, the power curve grows non-linearly like the, you know, the power of characters grows much faster than, than you would think given just a general level. And uh, so you you have to worry about that threat and the and the and balancing that challenge much more and put a lot more work into it in the higher tiers and the higher levels of the game than you do in the lower tiers, right? It's generally not hard to challenge like fourth level characters, or even you know, and then like you get to seventh, things start to get a little weird at seventh, and then twelfth, you're like, whoa, my guy got disintegrated, you know, and then. 15th and 17th you're hitting all kinds of stuff and by the time you get into those last few levels you know the whole world is altering itself around the the whims of the characters so um it's it's the kind of thing where the amount of energy that's going to go into it is going to have to scale at the same direction that the power of the characters is scaling up if that makes any sense yeah no i think that's true and i think i think you're right that it is it is tricky to because I don't know as a DM I'm not particularly inclined to like hide who the villain is necessarily because that takes away from their villaininess a little bit you know but if you yeah. but if the PCs know who they are then then it's just you know focus fire take them down and and then clean up afterwards right so how do you how do you adjust for that uh, so one thing I think is uh, is real important is that uh, and, and this is a there's advice about this in the book is like the players don't know what's on the page. 
right? So if you need to adjust stuff on the fly mm-hmm. uh, to make your villain feel like a really compelling villain, you can do that. Uh, I think one of the best Mike Shea pieces of advice that I've ever heard is like, you have infinite monsters. <laughs> no, there is literally like your players can be the most powerful builds that they could possibly think of. And you could still crush them under monsters because you'll never run out. Right. Um, so that's the one thing is that backups uh, can always show up. A monster can have way more hit points than uh than is suggested but i think um another big thing is to have uh built into your uh your creatures uh some ways out of a fight right like uh, uh and this comes down to the lair design too right um when a when a big bad picks a lair um, they don't just pick it because it's cool and evil. Uh, you know, that's that's part of it, right? The aesthetic is a big part of it. But the other part is like, why is this lair good for me as a villain? And so I think, uh, you know, for instance, a lich, a necromancer would pick a cavern filled with poisonous gas, right? Because he and all of his undead are <laughs> immune to the poisonous gas that's in there. And uh, and so, or maybe he's got a, uh, a rock, uh, you know, that's sealing off all the poison gas in one chamber, and he's ready to shoot his disintegrate ray at that to have the poison come pouring in uh, in the last moment uh, when he's about to be defeated. Um, so I think having a cool, uh, what I like to call like a dead man switch um, it is also fun in addition to an escape route, right? Like a, well, when you kill me, uh, this uh, giant machine that we're riding around in is actually attached to my heartbeat and is going to blow up. Um, <laughs> and you're not going to get my treasure when that happens. Or, you know, having like villains love to have an ace in the hole, right? And so in addition to the combat aspect, that that story and that environment aspect, I think, are super, super important to think about, right? Um, the, uh, you know, the, the portal that they're about to summon a big demon through. Uh, well, if you beat the cult leader too quickly, guess what that portal opened and now a big demon comes through and that's the real villain right, right. uh yeah so yeah i think we have in one of not to keep pitching fantastic layers but sure here we are um the uh we have we have a layer where a were rat fires a porcupine through an entire room riddling <laughs> the entire room with arrows because the were rat is immune right nice. <laughs> <laughs> there there are times where yeah you know, trying to find a way that the villain can use their immunities or use their resistances in their in their uh, in and their th- behalf. And I think you can you can do the same with the the minions and whatever running around with the big bad, right? You can look for that same sort of synergy. The the what what minions are can be running around that are also immune to the the big bad's breath weapon or fireball or whatever um what what creatures could be there that specifically sort of uh complement those abilities where the the big bad can can trigger you know use the minions as weapons and in, in different things because there are creatures that sort of synergize really well in that way um or at the very least don't get in each other's way with the right resistances or immunities right yeah, I'm trying to remember. There's a particular monster that, yeah, that like can use the minions around it. I can't remember. I was just either reading it or using it, or it was one we were talking about. It was a it was a monster that could, you know, like eat its minions for damage output and stuff, or it could <laughs> it could direct them to do things. I can't remember what it was. I know. Yeah, I know oh, well. the goblin boss can like grab minions and throw them in front yeah. of attacks. 
right? right. <laughs> um, yeah, Scott is so uh, Scott is a genius uh, because um, often we'll say like, I really, I really want this, right? And he'll be like, well, if you just add this ability from this creature to this monster, now it's going to synergize with all of these minions or the lair powers or whatever in a way. Um, yeah, Scott, you're a genius. You. Yes, I agree. Um, one, of, um, one of the things that I that I think sort of ties into to what we've just been talking about is the like all the all the talk about what you can do to a boss monster. Like if you want to make that your your at least your initial focus, you know what can I do to make the boss tougher? What can I do to make the boss more exciting, more interesting, more surprising? Um, one of the things that that's talked about in the book very specifically is when we're making changes to monsters, it's not about the idea of trying to come up with something that can defeat the characters. I mean, if that's your primary goal, um, that's pretty easy to do. You can build a monster that can stomp over anything if that's, if that's, you know, if, if that's kind of where you're at. But the bigger goal is to make the fight interesting and exciting, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, and that's, and that's not necessarily about damage output. That's not necessarily about the number of minions. You know, that's about, that's about making the boss memorable, making the boss a little bit different than a run-of-the-mill monster, making it a bit different than examples of that same type of monster uh, that the characters may have fought before. Maybe even, you know, sort of upgrading upgrading the monster's abilities and powers if if the boss is a monster that the characters have fought previously. So that as they're getting more powerful, every time, you know, it comes out, it gets a little bit more powerful the next time as it ramps up its own resources, gets access to new minions, gets access to new magic and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think James is starting to talk about that a little bit because um, I know I did a DM challenge I think once at PAX East, and you know I just ended up having a ritual going on, and that was what the players cared about. It was a trying to take a blood from a unicorn, and they really wanted to know, like they were invested in that fight because they didn't want to know what would happen if they lost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when someone's getting blood from a unicorn so um and i do wonder does that lead a little bit into talking about three pillars of play as well because so far we've been mainly talking about like more of the combat part right yeah i think that's i think that's an interesting thing to talk about yeah scott yeah i think absolutely i mean the 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 point that was raised right at the beginning of the of the Discussion talking about a monster. The the next step after you talk about the monster is to talk about where the monster is and what the monster can do, right? Because that really kind of sets up the idea that, you know, it's more it's more than just like a lair encounter. It's more than just you know like a straight up uh, melee slugfest, right? Um, what a monster can do in and of itself can be interesting up to a point, but where monsters get really interesting is how they interact with the world around them. I think. Uh, especially when you're talking about like a longer term campaign, how the monster, how the boss engages with what's going on around them, what the stakes are, uh, can really, really heighten what's going on in a boss encounter, even without making any mechanical changes to it. I mean, something as basic as if the monster's goal is simply to kill the characters and the character's goal is simply to kill the monsters. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, that can be fun, right? But if the monster's goal is to do something to the world that the characters desperately want to prevent, as with Tracy's example, right, that raises the stakes of the encounter automatically. And it, it can engage the players in a really kind of a visceral way, uh, much more so than just, you know, thinking about what kind of extra attacks can I give this guy? What kind of magic can I give them? What can I do that's going to really, you know, shock the characters or surprise them when I, when I throw it at them? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true, especially when you get to those creatures like fiends that are kind of evil for evil's sake. Right. Uh, you, you know, like a hag, like a night hag. Right. Is is it, you read that description. It's like the night hag is evil because it loves being evil. Uh, <laughs> and so coming up with like, OK, so but what is the plot? Right. Like what what is what does this hag want and what are they doing? And then why would I as a player character want to stop that thing from happening, right? Um, is a, is a really great way to make some memorable villains and then also can kind of help you determine the memorable lair that they're built around, right? Because Mm. not only is it a good defensible thing for that boss, it should be good for whatever their, their plan is, right? So if their plan is to, uh, you know, resurrect a, a, a dead Titan, um, there should be like a dead Titan there. And uh, and why did the Titan die there? Well, because there was a big battle, right? And now we're starting to get the see the shape of maybe where this all took place. Yeah. Um, and I, I think having that kind of thing then really helps inform uh, inform the story in a in a very memorable way, and then also gives you that uh, thing that the players are interested in stopping beyond let's you know stab this thing until it's dead. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think the layers I think the layers of villains also sh- and the and the situations that the characters walk into should should have openings for all of the pillars. So there should be people. Maybe sometimes you're talking to the boss. Maybe you're talking to a, min- a disgruntled minion, one of my favorite NPCs. Uh, and and there's always there's always things to explore around the area, even if it's like where can I go to get a better position on this guy, or you know what the hell is that giant statue that the dragon is hanging off of, right? Yeah. So there's lots of room. I think it's I think the best layers are ones that that have, you know, are are open to lots of types of interaction that aren't just go punch the bad guy in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well and and my, you know, one of my favorite kind of villains is the one who who you might encounter in different parts of a story while doing, you know, maybe you're exploring first and you, you, you hear rumors of this villain, right? And then later on, you meet the villain and there's a social interaction, but you're not going to beat him at this point, right? Uh, uh, you know, he invites you to a dinner party. Right. I, as somebody who's in the middle of playing Curse of Strahd, yes, absolutely. He invites you to a dinner party. And <laughs> you hang out. It's one of my favorite right. scenes. Absolutely. Yeah, let's, let's talk. Let's stop now, all this nonsense and have that's a conversation. Right. Absolutely. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm Theoretically, getting to that point in like one or two sessions, and I'm looking forward to seeing if they even bother to go. Like, I think they're so freaked out about Strahd. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I've been hyping him up long before they even got to Barovia, so now they're completely like freaked out. So, so this will be a good episode for me to think about because I want to know how do I make that not disappoint though, right? How do I, you know, they've been built him up so much. Like, let's not, let's not have a be a letdown in the end where they just uh, stomp him in in two or three rounds. Um, mm-hmm. Earlier. It, uh, I think it was James mentioned that Scott was particularly good at saying, hey, if you just sort of rip this ability out of another monster and stick it on your villain, like it would synergize really well here, right? And I think that does a that that's an interesting place sort of in between the categories of reskinning and sort of tweaking an existing character that, that I think would be interesting to talk about. So Scott, could you give an yeah. example of, of how to do that? Um, I think there's lots of examples. I mean, this is this isn't this certainly isn't something you know like a um, 
uh, something that I'm the only one who talks about. Mike Mike talks about this this sort of thing a lot as well. Most most of the monsters that we're coming up with, you know, they start out stock, and you think of something interesting to go into it. Um, for me, I think the reason to do that, the reason that I like doing that sort of thing, is that. For me, it's not so much about the mechanics of the monster, though obviously that is a consideration. You think, oh, I've got this one monster. It would be great. It would be great, for example, if the Tarask had a ranged attack, you know, just as a, as a hypothetical, you know, that, that kind of thing. That's right? so hypothetical. It, <laughs> <laughs> you can think about it tactically. You can think I've got this boss and this boss is good at X, Y, you know, but it, but it isn't that good at, 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 you know, some other stuff. So I want to, you know, borrow a couple of things. And, that, and that's totally fine. For me, though, the more interesting application of this is that it makes a monster memorable in a way because it totally shakes up the character's expectations of it. Okay, um, even the toughest monsters, if you're playing them kind of stock, right? They can be they can be really tough. They can be really challenging. They can be really interesting. But on some level, they're just sort of doing what the players may be expecting, especially experienced players, like veteran players who played many many campaigns, right? They've seen some of these monsters, even monsters that they haven't fought. They've read about them. So if you can throw something at them where they go, I did not expect that. I did not see that coming. Okay, it doesn't have to be a big thing even, but if it's something that just kind of throws them off a little bit, that can really go a long way toward making a boss really, really memorable and making a boss encounter really memorable because it kind of shakes them up a little bit. It puts them on, 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 some, on some uncertain footing because the first thing it says to the players is, okay, we may not know exactly what's going on here. There may be more stuff coming, which is going to be a surprise. So what are, you know, what are those things likely to be? What, what could possibly happen? And when the players start thinking like that, then it puts them in the same frame of mind as how their characters are thinking. And for me at the table, that's something that I find really, really interesting, um, is when you can get the players to the point where the players are thinking like the characters should be thinking in that particular scenario. Because it makes things, it can make things really, really vibrant. It can make things really exciting. Yeah, I think the the other thing is, and, and this is also not a new piece of advice, right? But like, your your monsters typically have loot, Right. They have magic items uh, and smart bosses are going to be using those. And that's another way to give a really cool and surprising ability to a creature, especially creatures that we don't think of typically using magic items. Um, So, uh, you know, like like if you were to give um, some sort of crazy magic item to a beholder, Right. Uh, I think that's one of the things that makes the Xanathar so cool is that he's wearing these rings around his eye stalks. Uh, And those like a beholder with a ring of invisibility is one of the scariest things that I could think of. Right. Um, So, uh, yeah, that's that's another way to really increase the fear and surprise factor. Yeah. yeah, as a, as a general rule, when I'm running uh, bosses, right, they they don't have in terms of magic items, they don't have loot. I populate them with the magic items that I want them to have so that they right. are more challenging. And then it becomes loot once you've defeated them. But I don't just roll <laughs> up random magic items and say, oh, they, they got a folding boat because, you know, that's what the dice said, right? No, 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 no. If they have an item, it's because it's useful to them. And then you got to, you have to you have to earn it, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I kind of like the idea of a giant swinging a folding boat, though. I'm just going to say that <laughs> that's a pretty awesome a weapon. Fold at people, that that becomes a that becomes quick. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It folds right up. You know, it's just. Uh... But you can turn it into a ship, right? Like it could be a really it big turn, boat. It, it gets pretty big. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> like hurl it over someone and it expands instant, out. Instant, instant cover on the battlefield. Right. <laughs> my, my, I thought of it because my current group actually has a folding boat and they recently ran into a river where they couldn't figure out how to get across it and they, they figured out this this you know complex scheme to, of ropes and stuff to, to swim across without like, getting washed away and whatever. And they got to the other side. I'm like, you know, you all know you got a folding boat last session, right? Oh, you know, so. but that's that's neither here nor there. So it's uh, it is. I I love um, you know the the in the three pillars sense to uh, having the players to able to find out stuff about the lair through interacting with uh, minions and henchmen, right? We have all these wonderful ways to beguile and deceive uh, henchmen. You can, you know, bust out that disguise kit and put on a disguise. You can, uh, you know, use uh, a, like a long range uh, listening device, all that kind of stuff. Um, And I think that, is an excellent way to drop some cool information about those surprises, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I, I'm listening in and now I've learned that uh, they have a, you know, a wand of fireballs. And so when we get in there, we know we're going to immediately spread out as quickly as we can so that the dragon doesn't just fireball and breath weapon us to death. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and ultimately, like, it's not the case with all bosses, right? But it's not uncommon for a boss to be sort of a recurring villain. So it's hard to have the PCs be completely surprised if they've run into this villain a few times. Um, but ultimately, that doesn't mean that that final encounter is in the you know in a place you know the location can can bring in some twists. The minions that happen to be there that time can bring in some twists. The fact that the villain has run into the PCs means that they've also learned a little bit and can prepare for the players a little bit and and yeah. that can add a twist and so you can still sort of evolve even if they've even if they've run into Strahd 15 times over the course of the campaign now Strahd's ready for them as much as the, as they're ready for him right so mhm yeah absolutely yeah there's kind of getting back to that sort of in between space of of customizing a monster either reskinning reskinning a different monster or building your own and and you know we talked about this a little bit but I think it's it's a it's a good point worth hammering down particularly for those of us who like the lazy approach of finding just a couple of additional things that you can add on to a monster that makes it kind of interesting and unique. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's something that, that I've done in a lot of books previous Scott and I have worked on these previously, and we're certainly doing it in, in fantastic layers, which is, you know, how can you take just a couple of attributes and add it to an existing monster? Mm-hmm. And, you know, four E or five, four E five E doesn't really have a, uh, monster template system that's used very much. Uh, there are a couple of monsters that have a monster template. Uh, your your Dracoliches and your Shadow Dragons and things like that. But generally speaking, they don't. And I, I think the reason why is that pretty much any monster can act as a template for another monster. Mm-hmm. So you can you if you want a Stone Giant Lich, you know you can take the Lich and give it like two or three properties, and now it's a Stone Giant Lich. Right. You can there's there's lots of like one line and two line things that you can do to a monster that dramatically changes the monster. And uh, usually for story purposes, right, that you you, you have a particular type of monster that you want to you want to throw out there. Um, and I, I think that that's a really good approach for uh, homebrewing DMs 
that, you know, instead of kind of starting from scratch and figuring out the attributes and going through the charts to figure out what proficiency bonus a monster at a certain level will have, you know, that idea of taking a monster, and this is in the Dungeon Master's Guide, like this is not crazy arcane lore, right? This is, this is part of the core books, which is, you know, find, find a couple of elements of an existing monster and, and apply it, you know, to the monster you want to change. And you have, you have something entirely new. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a couple of other, yeah, the gob, the goblin lich is, uh, Keith Amon says, and <laughs> you could definitely do a goblin lich. Um, the other one, uh, the, the other thing, and this is something that we, we use a lot in, in fantastic layers. It's something that I've used often is that there are, there are dials that a monster has built into them that you can turn, uh, while you're running it. Mm-hmm. And this, this is somewhat controversial. There will be, there will be DMS and players who, who, who's, who's, you know, ruffles will, 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 you know, feathers will get ruffled on this one, but you can, you can turn the dials while the battle's going on. Right. And one of them are hit points. That the, the hit points that are listed for a monster are the average hit points of that monster. And they're not set in stone. And you you can have monsters that have way fewer hit points or way more hit points and still be within the range of the design of that monster. So if you want to have a bigger ogre, you can have a bigger ogre just by having giving it more hit points. But the dirty, the dirty secret is you can change those hit points during the game if you want to. Right. And you wouldn't you wouldn't do so for any kind of malicious reason you would do so like wow this battle's boring right like they beat everything else they're going to beat this guy i don't want to pull that nonsense of saying well we're just going to call the battle right here which a lot of people do uh instead just turn the dial all the way to the left and now he's got one hit point left and the very next hit knocks him right out right and they're they're gone Um, yeah no that that was uh back in that way i was telling you sort of where I was at and how I was thinking about this topic uh, over the last year or so started with that conversation that we had on behind the DM screen about um, making my demon lords scarier, right? Um, because they're demon lords, darn it, and, and you shouldn't be able to walk in and, and trounce over Orcus like it was nothing in, in the middle of his horde. No, no, no. Um, and, and one of the things that you said was like to pay attention to the hit points because that's an average that's listed. So when you're talking about the demon lords, like they're a unique creature. Don't take the average. They just have the most. Like just whatever the maximum hit points is sure. for something that's unique yeah. and, and supposed to be really scary. And you want to make sure they they live long enough to, to get through five or six rounds of combat so they can pull off their neat combos and cast all their their fun spells or whatever like give them the hit points to do that because because they're a unique big bad and they should they should have it right that was one of the three big takeaways i got from you that that completely changed the way i ran my demon lords and 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 honestly in many ways made that campaign much better uh orcus's default hit points are 405 but maxed out it's 570 (laughs) yeah. <laughs> so you have a nice, you know, like, you you know, if you want to jack them up 165 hit points, you know, you could do so and still be within range. And and I would say you don't even really have to stay in that range. If you want your orchestra to have a thousand hit points, give them a thousand hit points. Right. Like, you, yeah, that, you know. it, it is. It has not been uncommon behind my screen where my players aren't noticing it. Right. Where I will just on the fly, I'll be like, oh, well, technically, they just took out the big bad monster 
in a round and a half, right? They focused fire, they nova it, they nuked the, the creature, and it's gone, and I didn't get to do any of the cool things. It's not satisfying for the story. It doesn't come off as a satisfying challenge. You know what? I'm just going to pretend to keep jotting down hit points, and this thing just keeps... It survives until it's interesting for it to fall, you know? Which it might be one round, two more rounds, whatever, <laughs> You know. A lot a lot of times I'll turn that dial all the way to the right where they're maxed out on their hit points or I have a number in my head about the and then during the game I'll turn it to the left, right? So I'll start with them at sort of the hardest level. And then when I see like, okay, this is dragging on, it's late at night, people need to drive home or turn up Discord <laughs> as it is these days, then you know, then I'll go ahead and 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 sort of move the dial in the other direction. The other dial is damage. Right. And and there's there's kind of two tricks with this. Uh, one is if you run static damage, uh, which, again, is the default, it's sort of like hit points, like everybody you know uses the average static damage for hit points, but then rolls for damage. And and, you know, <laughs> you can actually flip those and roll for hit points and use static damage when you use static damage. That means you can play with that number, too. Right. You can you can decide that, like, this guy hits harder. Or, you know, and then again, tying back into that sort of environmental effect, if you have like a, um, you know, you have a white who is fighting inside of an unholy temple. Now that white's longsword is covered with necrotic energy and he's doing an extra 3d6 necrotic damage on every hit. Right. Now he's way more dangerous than he was just as a normal white swinging a sword as, as they do normally. So when you can tie it to something that's in the environment, it's it's even better uh, it, it you know it adds a lot more to the story about why they're hitting so hard you know if you have a um a helmed horror which is known to do uh, you know have a lot of the high very high ac i think it's like an ac20 and what if what if it could start to burn which lowered its ac but made its damage output go way up mm-hmm. right what if this is a, a you know you, you kind of take two dials you're turning them in the other direction suddenly it goes from being this wall of iron to this you know fire wielding monstrosity you know the, the the glass cannon you know those are dials that that you know i think dm should feel free to turn while they're while they're playing their game for the, for, for the better for the fun of the game yeah. one of the things that i really love about this conversation like all, all of the all of the stuff talking about the changes you can make to monsters either on the fly or at the design stage is that it it underlines that on some level, it's almost more important when you're thinking about D&D combat to think about it as a narrative approach than a mechanical approach. Mm-hmm. Because to be very clear, all the stuff that we're talking about here, you know, um, maximizing hit points, increasing damage, uh, giving monsters extra attacks is another one. Yeah. Um, if you if they're just not, you know, they're just not holding up their end in the fight. All of that stuff can really, really mess around with the monster's challenge rating. And if you approach this from a mechanical perspective and say, okay, I want to give this, you know, all my whites an extra 3d6 necrotic, what does that do to their CR? You know, that's a, that's a bag of hurt because it's really, really difficult. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to figure that out even when you've got a lot of time on your hands. Trying to figure that out in the middle of a session is practically impossible. So it really kind of underlines that on some, I mean, there's, there's certainly ways to set up bad fights. You can set up fights against foes that are just way too powerful or just there's way too many of them, you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's going to go badly at the table probably. But if you're starting off at sort of like a good mid range, um, it's really just about thinking, what can I do to make this fight more interesting? What can I do to make it more exciting? And to remember that if you accidentally push too far, 
right? So you've suddenly realized, oh, I've made these, you know, this 3D6 is just, they're just mowing through the PCs. That wasn't what I intended. You can also dial it in the other direction as well to sort of compensate, right? Combat in that way can be something which is very, very fluid, right? Where, where, where you can, you as the DM can be making changes on the fly without anybody ever knowing about it, right? Just to keep the fight interesting, just to make the fight exciting. And ultimately at some level, that has to become more important than the mechanics of challenge rating and thinking about, okay, is this a balanced encounter? How many XP is this worth? Um, in order for the fights to really be memorable and to really be interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, ultimately, I, I think I don't really even, in my, in my game, I don't care what I do to the CR of the creature, right? It's irrelevant to the yeah. story that I'm telling, right? It doesn't, exactly, no, yeah. now, I, now, those of you say, say putting out a, a published product full of creatures i want you i want you to think about the cr right but and as this is, yeah at my table like yeah I, i'm gonna the, those are the those were really the three pieces of advice that mike gave me to make my demon lord scary uh that year ago right it was it was hit points it was turn the dial on on the damage i think you specifically said just take whatever the plus whatever it is and double it you know, if yeah. it's two, if it's two d six plus twelve, just make it plus twenty four, right? Uh, or you know, and and that worked, right? It was fine. And the other one was was futz with the action economy, right? Because it's it's a lot of times it's the attacks that make a big bad creature, um, like that's their main bread and butter. That's their damage. Uh, that's that's what they're going to be known for because they do it all the time, right? They're going to claw. They're going to bite. They're going to hit you with the flail, whatever. Um, but they've got all these spell-like abilities and these other things that you sometimes never get a chance to get into, and mm -hmm. or or if you do it, you completely miss them doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing all the time and whatever. So Mike's advice on that that, that I use for the Demon Lords, and I don't use it for literally anything except for these big, scary, like, these are the things that threaten civilizations sort of creatures. Yeah. Um, but, he said, but Mike's advice was, if it has a multi-attack action... Just take out one of those attacks and make it a spell, right? Which totally is not okay in terms of the rules of the game, <laughs> no. but it but it works. Totally right? cheating, but it works. Like yeah. like like Orcus is now going to hit you with with his his mace twice and cast finger of death on you, and like that's properly scary for a demon lord, right? Yeah. So. And so I know earlier Mike had this Freudian slip about four E. <laughs> but I'm feeling like I've had a lot of these same conversations around it, right? Like, I mean, part of it is the remembering all of the potential powers or whatever you want to call it. Um, I know that was a frequent complaint, which goes to what you were just saying, Jeff. But, like, overall, it was just, like, how do, you know, the original DMG in 48, it was page 42, had the list of approximate, like, how much damage you should be doing, uh a monster should be doing at each level and stuff like that, that just in some ways freed this type of stuff up. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I love that you brought up 4E too, Tracy, because, uh, one of my favorite, uh, sort of videos about mon boss monsters and action economy is from Matt Colville, uh, made this video about action oriented monsters and how like, uh, you know, he was talking about like monsters with spell lists, 
often they have all these spells and it's like you, they're going to survive for three rounds, you know, and, and I've got 17 spells here and I've got all these options. And uh, and so one thing that he likes to think about when he is designing his own monsters and you can do this uh, with monsters or with the things that happen in their lair uh, is another way to do it. Uh, like each round something unique will happen, right? So this monster is going to have a way to suddenly call more goblins in if it's a goblin boss or if it's an Ankeg, it's going to, uh, in the second round of combat, combat because it's got acid blood, right? And is probably bleeding now in the second round of combat, spray acid blood on everybody, that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, so he talks about kind of having a plan like that and what's interesting is then on Reddit, uh, he used the goblin boss and the Ankeg in his video. On Reddit, then, people have done like every monster in the monster manual as one of these <laughs> action oriented boss monsters now. So it, that's all also available on the internet for you to Google, like, what's a cool Helm Tarer fight? And uh, you'll get a zillion ideas that will come up. But it did, uh, I, I think he took a lot of inspiration from. 4e with that idea of like what are the unique things about this monster and how can i just make it do a cool thing which is very narrative too right it's it's very much like i just want it to be able to call more goblins forth and so it can right yeah i remember when i did lost city for kobold um for instance i was worried about this thing of like there's this big plant monster what if they just trapped it down, particularly if you had to worry about that a lot more. And so what I did, because we had the bloodied thing then, is I actually completely changed the monster. It was this plant that sent out runners at when it got bloodied. So then now they couldn't concentrate fire uh, anymore, and they had to change the encounter uh, midway, uh, midway, quote-unquote. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the... Um... Uh, one of the things I really liked about Mount Colville's description of of action oriented monsters, and and something I think is really important that I bet I bet people miss is that he had the idea that you would be able to whip that up in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't something you had to sit down and sort of write out a whole new stat block exactly. for. A bunch of people yeah. did, and that's fine. And then other people can you go sure. use it. But <laughs> I, I think the the power of that, and I think the the value of learning about that idea of the action-oriented economy, action-oriented monster, is when you can sort of build those rules in your head and then pull them out when you need them during the game itself. If you say mm-hmm. like, you know, because you, you, I'm I'm just of the belief that like we don't want to spend a whole lot of time, you know, doing monster design. Like people are paying us to do monster design. Exactly. Right. And like, you know, when you're in your home game, you should ideally have little rules of thumb in your head that can help you just like you're saying, like you don't worry about CR. And then, and the, the funny thing is I, I was looking at the book cause I was like, man, Scott has saved my bacon. Like every time I custom <laughs> this monster and I, I, I never mentioned CR and I'm like, Hey, I want to, I was looking it up. I want a vampire spawn with 112 hit points of strength of 20. And that fights, it gets three attacks with a great sword. Right. Cause that just sounds awesome. And he's like, yeah, that's not CR four anymore. You know, <laughs> like, I don't care. You know, and it's like, well, people need it so i go you're right and so that's cr7 so um yeah so the the idea of being able to sort of from up from a home d you know game running dm side is what are the what are the rules of thumb that can that can do that like how can you look at the environment and realize like ooh, i bet it would be really cool if like halfway through this fight this thing happened 
uh, rather than having to kind of sit down and, and design it. You know, and I think I think there's an instinct there for DMs to want to go, you know, pull up, you know, the critter DB and start building brand new monsters when yet time might be better spent thinking about what your, what your players and what your characters want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and for what it's worth, uh, you, the two of you mentioned uh, Colville's action oriented monsters video and evil John in the chat on the Twitch stream uh, got there about five or 10 minutes before you, you, you both did. So <laughs> <laughs> John's always on the money. Yeah, and, and C2G official uh, down here is is mentioning that one of the other things you can do uh, is he's is adding in things that add to the fight, add to the to the boss without um, without adding to the action economy, like a, a Baylor's uh, fire aura. You know, we, we had a lot of the aura type things in uh, in the four E days, kind of harkening back to that. And there's a li- and there's a little bit of that that's held on uh, and is still around in five E, uh, but not as it doesn't feel like nearly as much, which is probably yeah, good. Fire, there was a, fire shield. Yeah, there was a fire lot of shield tracking is one of those like wonderful effects that scales with the number of people that are hitting the monster rather than the monster <laughs> itself. So like a red dragon with a fire shield is just awful. And boy, <laughs> your players who play monks will hate you. Right. <laughs> they're just like punching and every punch they're doing like six damage and taking like 12 back. Right. And then if you beef up the fire shield, now you're just being a jerk. Right? <laughs> Make it like a 20 point fire shield. It's just brutal. <laughs> So so yeah, we we sort of uh, I started off by saying that there were these three, and then and then um, you added one, so four sort of ways of approaching um, beefing up a monster or making a boss, right? Uh, whether it be um, creating a new one, tweaking an existing uh, creature, reskinning one creature. And making it a boss that just looks like something else. We didn't really talk much about that, but that's a thing that you can do, right? Oh, uh, you you need a you need a big bad that sort of regenerates, and it's just this big burly guy that punches people really hard. Just make it a medium sized troll, you know, or whatever you need uh, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, to that to that point too. Um, it just made me think of uh, that you can do that to make cool lieutenants. So Mike had talked about in the beginning, right? Like. Um, uh, players love to go after the big guy and one kind of way to uh, make them maybe spend some resources before they get to the boss is have a lieutenant that they meet first, a mini boss, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, and so you can often reskin with them. I'm thinking of it because in our book, we have a two headed giant knoll, which we just say like, use the end stat block and add this null trait to it, right? Um, so, uh, but but that's kind of part of the fun too of of reskinning is uh, you can do you can have really cool lieutenants by saying like, well, there isn't really an ooze that does exactly this, but if I take this shambling mound and turn that into an ooze, right, you're you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an, there's another dirty trick that I really really love, which is running boss battles twice. And if you have, if or or more, uh, and if you particularly there's there's monster types that are built for this, like liches are built to survive first contact, right? Like you might have a lich show up, and the party just beats the crap out of them, and they got a flactory on the other side of the world, right? And then they come back and wow, that didn't go well. I'm gonna go do some things, right? 
um, the clone or as a simulacrum, right? If you have high level spellcasters, which some dragons can be, uh, they can cast simulacrum and make a copy of themselves and have the copy go attack the characters <laughs> and then and then and then watch and see what happens, right? Yep. So I think uh, I was running Storm King's Thunder and I ran Imrith, who's uh, spoilers for Storm King's Thunder, uh, is a it is an ancient blue dragon. And and had in my version had had the simulacrum spell and, and attacked them three times, right? And in fact, fought with both her and the simulacrum in one fight. So now we have two bosses, <laughs> two. You're fighting two ancient dragons in one fight. Um, so there's there's lots of built-in methods for boss monsters to be able to face them twice. Demons, like every demon, can theoretically fight someone on the prime material plane and then also in their home plane before they're truly killed. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have with Tiamat. Right. I ran Tiamat multiple times because one time Tiamat was on the prime plane and she got Vorpal sword beheaded. But it's only one head. It's not a big deal. And <laughs> then, you know, and then they She's went and famous. fought her in hell. And it was a very different fight. And I was doing that even back in the 40 days. I think they fought Orcus twice when I when I was running a big Orcus campaign. So that the, the finding out there, there are ways that are in you know, in sort of the core of D&D already with a bunch of different kinds of spells. But then, and then there's always many story ways that you can sort of have multiple bosses, you know, or, or have a boss fight them multiple times. Vampires, Strahd, right? Like, Strahd could fight them 50 times if he wants, right? So, yeah. if, if setup is right. So, Absolutely. Yeah. No, very good. And then the other thing that we ended up talking about um, that you added to the list was encounter design right which was a really smart thing to add as well how do you change the layers the minions the other things that might synergize with the big bad that that helps make that sing a little bit as well uh so i guess um we've hit more or less, we didn't talk a lot about creating a new creature from scratch although uh, do you have any particular thoughts or is that even advisable you know <laughs> so. I'll, i mean i'll let so james makes lots of monsters right <laughs> He's making an entirely new new monster manual, I think. And uh, him and his dad uh, with the tiny little beholders. Um, mm-hmm. The tiny little sad beholders. And the, what was the Atiag? Tell us about the Atiag again. Oh, yeah. So uh, that is a uh, like a friendly fey creature that can create illusionary smells um, <laughs> that he uh, has. Yeah. I, you know what's funny is I, I would say a lot of the same advice applies in the sense of like, don't reinvent the wheel, right? One of the one of the best things uh, that Five E did um, was like, hey, if this monster has the same ability as this monster, we're calling it the same thing, right? Pack tactics is the same whether a wolf or a kobold has it. It's got the same name. Uh, uh, the you know, uh, whereas Four E sometimes you would have like the same ability, but with a more flavorful name that was specific to the monster. Right. Right. Um, so my advice is like, think about how your creature is when you're, when you're building something new, right? What is it like? Uh, and, and so, Hey, maybe it's got the reckless ability of the berserker and, you know, it's got a bite and a claw attack. Right. And, And so like my, my process with my father has been to, Think about all of the things that already exist out there and and throw those into the monster soup, um, you know, along with hit points and ability scores and all that kind of stuff. And then add 
like one or two new abilities to make the monster unique and stand out. Right. Um, and, and that is usually enough in fifth edition, uh, to have like a cool signature ability, uh, or maybe a second one to synergize with that, that first one, uh, to make your monster feel like it is its own thing. Uh, and sometimes that's as simple as like, Hey, this monster is immune to all slashing damage, magical or not. Um, and that's that's going to make your monster feel really different if suddenly long swords don't work on it, right? Yeah, it's uh, just mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, listen, my dad designed it. Don't, uh, don't hold me to it. Um, so. <laughs> Culpable deniability. Exactly. He doesn't know how D&D works, so... <laughs> Um, but, but so that's, uh, that's the, that's one, it will make it easy on yourself, but two, uh, I think it is uh, probably good design in a way that it odds are you're going to create a bunch of abilities that already exist in the game anyway. Um, so don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and even then, like if you're trying to make it a big bad, right, a big boss monster, maybe just follow that that advice of reskinning and tweak or, or tweak a thing or whatever, right? Uh, and then also look look at those other areas that we discussed, and then maybe crank up the hit points and crank up the damage output a little bit because this is the big bad, right? This isn't just a knoll. This is the boss knoll of all boss knolls, right? Uh, so so give it a little bit give it a little bit more uh, uh, oomph. Uh, and and staying power besides just giving it an extra ability or immunity to all slashing attacks. So right, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> good. So so we've talked through all those things and we've been chatting for for almost an hour now. Um, does anybody have any sort of last thoughts about how you how you take a creature and make it sort of the big bad that's going to last long enough uh, to to be interesting? That's always my trick, right? Or my problem is that, you know, I can have a really interesting creature, but if it dies two rounds in, then what was the point of having all these little abilities that I never got around to using? So, so how do I, so any last thoughts before we, uh, before we wrap up? Uh, I'll, I'll add one. I was looking at an article I wrote a, a couple of years ago where I asked this question on Twitter and got lots of replies and kind of aggregated the replies together. And one that we didn't really cover was uh, draining the character's resources before the fight begins. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, particularly at high levels, will tell you that like their boss gets nailed because the characters are at full strength and they have every spell resource. But if the if if the um, uh, if the, the story in the situation has occurred where they don't get a chance for a rest and they're, they've been attacked by lots of minions and now they go in and they already blew their action surge and you know, they already burned a bunch of spell slots, that boss fight is going to be way harder than if they're going in with every single resource at their disposal mm -hmm. um, and they're going to burn everything they've got to, to, to beat that boss. So that's another way to make it a little bit more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, remembering that bosses have a contingency plan and a place to run and and go and recoup is really important. A lot of bosses are super smart uh, and, you know, uh, they are survivors uh, just like Destiny's Child. And so uh, <laughs> they're going to they're going to have a cool escape plan and they're going that escape plan is going to involve messing with the characters even more so like you know they, they have a way to collapse 
when they get into their secret tunnel to collapse the rest of their dungeon or or send a wave of acid uh, or anything like that at the characters, uh, because uh, that then all of a sudden we're in an exploration challenge and oh crap, I had prepared all these smite spells because I thought we were going to be killing a dragon today and not running in heavy armor as fast as we can out of a volcano that's erupting, right? So, I want to congratulate you on what I think is in 15 or so years, the first Destiny's Child reference on the Tome Show. So good job. (laughs) Oh, thank you. you. I'm I'm surprised that uh, your volcano reference wasn't uh, something about chasing waterfalls, but ah, that would have been great. <laughs> and love a good TLC reference. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll get it next time. Something go. about creep creep through the dungeon or something there like that. So. <laughs> All right. Any other last thoughts? So, and. I don't want to necessarily extend the discussion, but I'm just thinking through what I like listening to, to what folks are saying. And it sounds like part of it is this need to um, have novelty or something new for particularly since five years, like how old now, uh, you know, the players will keep metagaming and they're going to know what a lot of the monsters do. So we have to keep throwing these new things out at them. Um, does it make sense, though, also to try to understand if you're not writing a product for a general audience, just where those limits are? Like, um, you know, a lot of people have lore limits mm-hmm. as to like what dwarves can do. Like they're not going to be archers or something like that. Does that make sense at all? Or Yeah, I think so. I think it's real. I mean, again, it's mostly what this comes down to for me at least is it's, it's always talking about what the story of the encounter is going to come out as how that story might be told, you know, when, when the DM and the players get together. Right. Um, certainly if you're talking about your own campaign, if you're talking about the stuff that you're doing for yourself, you'll have a pretty strong sense of what the players can and can't handle what they are and aren't interested in, you know, and that's another, that's another really uh, good thing to keep in mind as you're thinking about how to, um, you know, how to, uh, how to put a boss battle together is just thinking about what what sorts of things will the players find interesting? What sorts of things will they find novel? Um, and, you know, what, what kind of effect is that going to have on the encounter as a whole, right? I think ultimately what it comes down to, like, like for the book, um, one of the big challenges is we're, we're setting up boss encounters um, and boss lairs, and we have no idea how people are going to use them. Right. We're basically saying, you know, here's the big climactic encounter for your adventure or your campaign. We have no idea what that adventure or campaign looks like. Off you go. Right. Um, and it's been a really interesting learning experience because we've had to think a lot about, OK, you know, you know, these are the obvious possibilities. And then here's the next tier of you know less obvious possibilities. And here's the stuff that when we first thought about when we were first talking about these encounters, we hadn't even even conceived of. But at some point, somebody pops up and says, hey, you know, somebody running this might end up using it in this particular way. And we all kind of go, oh, yeah, that would be really cool. And things sort of get changed and things kind of get reworked uh, as a result of just thinking about, you know, um, what what what's going to happen to these encounters when they actually meet real groups of players. It's, it's, and that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to looking at the book simply because one of the places I start with a story, with an arc, with a campaign, whatever, is who's the big bad? Where are you going to run into them at the end of the campaign? Like, where's their layer at? Uh, and what are they up to, right? And so uh, it sounds like what you are working on is basically a book full of, of 
answers to those questions. And now I get to build the story that leads to that, right? The, that sort of spawns from, okay, this is the end. Now I get to f- sort of figure out how you get there. And, and that's generally how my my head uh, works in terms of campaign design. So you got a whole book full of campaigns that you didn't even have to write the whole campaign for. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're certainly hoping that, that that people will take that approach to it, um, and it's been it's been a lot of fun working on it. It's, it's it's been a lot of fun just sort of thinking about thinking about this this very narrow aspect of the design space. You know, talking about like like you said, coming in at the end uh, and figuring out what the ending looks like, and then and then leaving enough leaving enough hooks, leaving enough open possibilities that a whole bunch of different people can figure out different routes to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, and, and, uh, it was a goal that, uh, like we kept hammering home. I feel like, right. was like, remember, this is not just a self-contained thing. This is a capstone. Uh, this is, you know, this, and and they can be right. Like they totally can be self-contained adventures. If you just want to run a one shot and throw down, you know, uh, a cool lair with a cool villain in it. Um, you can do that with this book. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's really going to be like you said, Jeff, very tempting. Uh, I think, uh, for people, I know it is for me when I, when I read Mike's layers, I'm like, yeah, but first, how do we, how do we find out this where rat is in the sewer with its porcupine, right? Like, what do we do? And, <laughs> and what's that look like? Because he, each one of these villains does have a really cool, um, scheme that we have sort of worked on together that that we think about like why are you going into this lair right like what is what is the point of facing an oni uh if not to stop something that they're doing or at the very least to take the cool thing that they have right in in traditional D style but each villain has something um going on and like a like a personal stake in in why they want to see those ends achieved uh and so there's good reason to go into that lair but then there's also good reason to have an adventure where you're uncovering the plot of the villain along the way uh before you even you know step on their front uh doorstep all right well if there's no other thoughts um i think we can go ahead and call that the end of the episode we'd like to say thank you to our guests Scott, where can folks find you? Um, folks can find me probably most easily on Twitter, uh, where I am at Scott F. Gray. Uh, I have a website as well, insaneangel.com, but there's generally never anything on it. Um, but uh, yeah, either of those, either of those, I'm usually around. Awesome. Mike? Uh, slyflourish.com and twitter.com slash slyflourish. And James? Uh, so I am James Intracasso uh, on Twitter uh, and worldsbuilderblog.com and don'tsplitthepodcastnetwork.com. Sweet. And if people wanted to to go to somewhere where they could find out about this project that you're working on, where would they go to do that? Fantasticlayers.com. Woo! You have right. all the links to all of the things will be on that site. And I do want to note that Mike Shea's Twitter is the official complaint department. Uh, so if you don't like something about the Kickstarter, yeah. at Sly Flourish uh, is definitely I, where you want to. Because I care. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any issue, if you have any issues with the Kickstarter at all, 
Go to Mike's blog, leave yep. a comment. Yep, go ahead and leave it right. Go to my, my blog and leave a comment. Go find the comments. They're there somewhere. You just got to click through a lot you of sites. Really yeah. You got to really dig for it. We'd also like to say thank you to our listeners who support the show using our affiliate links on Amazon and DMs Guild, as well as those who support us directly at patreon.com slash the tome show, like Joel Sanders, Leonard Pelletier, Doug Palmer, Merrick Blackman, Hyperlexic, Carl Halperin, and new patrons, Steal Your Mind and Scott Nagel. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can reach out to The Tome Show. We are, uh, our email is thetomeshow at gmail.com. Uh, Tracy is on Twitter. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Uh, the show is at The Tome Show. And that's episode 339, where we figured out how to make baddies so tough that we're even a little scared of them. In this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.